Now let us turn together, as usual, to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And our reading this morning is continuing in the 16th chapter, from verse 25 through 34, part of the passage that we read together last Lord's Day morning, and we are returning to it today for the second time, Acts chapter 16, from verse 25. If you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the scripture reading from the Bible in the pew in front of you, where we read these words. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Men, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and the whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. Thus reads the holy word of God. May he bless it once more to our understanding. Now this morning, as you can see, we are returning for a second time to the particular passage that we began to deal with last Lord's Day morning, the third of the great conversions to Christ that are listed in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And surely of all the three conversions that we have been sharing and studying together on these Sunday mornings, this is, in many ways, the most remarkable of them all. And if ever there were an illustration of the stupendous power of the grace and mercy of God in the book of Acts, I would suggest to you that next to the conversion of the Apostle Paul himself, we probably find the second illustration right here in the 16th of Acts. When you think of it, it is a most arresting account that in one single night, this hard-bitten Roman jailer was a man completely altered and changed. Changed from being hard and callous and a stern disciplinarian in which there appears to have been not an ounce of human kindness or mercy in his body. At midnight, a brutal Roman soldier. But here, 
an amazing transformation, for by daybreak he was a kindly and a believing man. Now I believe that this whole incident that we began to look at last Sunday morning is therefore of such importance that we ought to turn again to it today as a congregation and focus particularly on verses 30 and 31, where you will notice you have a life-changing question and a life-changing answer. And all that has preceded it in this previous passage really leads up to that great question and that equally plain and direct answer to the greatest question that can come from human lips. The man's call for the light, the springing into the cell, his question about salvation, the midnight audience that followed in the jailer's house, all of these things either lead up to or follow from the great question that he is asking here. So I want you to look with me this morning at this most urgent question that can ever be asked by human lips and this most vital answer that can ever be given to it. Now, as you have your Bible open in front of you, I direct your attention then to the first of these two things as we look at this passage together today. The most urgent question in verse 30. He then brought them out, writes the historian Luke, and he asked them, men, what must I do to be saved? Now you remember, I'm sure, very well the course of the apostles' ministry in that Greek city of Philippi in northern Greece the very extraordinary and unusual circumstances that had led them there in order that this question might be asked, how the Holy Spirit had brought them over from Asia Minor to set foot on the continent of Europe for the very first time and how the very first sermon recorded in Scripture was preached on European soil and Lydia was converted as a result of it. And how the course of the gospel, as we saw last Sunday, like the course of true love, is seldom smooth. And that in the conversion of the demon-possessed slave girl, great trouble arose for these men, and persecution broke out in the streets of Philippi, and there was mob violence, and they were dragged before the magistrates. And with untruthful accusations, they were accused and shamefully stripped. They were cruelly beaten and then thrust into the innermost dungeon of that prison in the Greek city of Philippi. And we saw last Sunday morning, you remember, that all this happened because the Holy Spirit had directed them to this very place of witness and ministry. And indeed, the very truth that we read of in the Old Testament Scripture, together in our Old Testament lesson, is true of these circumstances, where the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And surely if ever there was a biblical illustration of that great truth, it's here in this passage before us. For God knew what he was doing, beloved. He who had opened Lydia's heart, he by whose power the demon had been exorcised from the life of that poor, demented slave girl, was now about to bring in a trophy of God's grace that will shine with great brilliance to all eternity. The jailer is about to be converted. And you notice that this is happening not from a pulpit. It's happening, beloved, from a prison, a most effective pulpit in these particular instances as a result of the witness of godly men who in the midst of great agony and physical pain were both praying to the Lord and praising him. And you have the most urgent question that can ever come from human lips. Now, you see, it surely reveals three things, this most urgent question to us this morning. And the first of these three things is that it shows to us an awakened concern. I wonder if you've come to church this morning with any sense of what I mean, with an awakened concern about the things of God and the ways of God and the word of God. Because surely as you read this passage and have read it with me, the thing that starts up out of the page and confronts you is here was a man whose concern about spiritual and eternal things was suddenly and dramatically awakened. And we have read of him, have we not? But up to that very moment of the earthquake and the witness of the apostles in prison, he lived as a man unconcerned, going about his daily duties in the prison, one day being very much like another day, stern and methodical, and with that sense of duty that the Roman soldiers so preeminently possessed as we believe him to be, a retired Roman soldier put into that position of great responsibility and immense trust, the care of all the prisoners in those cells. But a man who spiritually was unconcerned up to this moment, until something now happens that makes salvation his primary concern. Now, are we not living today in times when this generation is very concerned? But it's concerned to be happy, isn't it? It's concerned to pay the bills and where the money is coming from to pay those bills. It's concerned about success in my job and vocation and my family and my life. It's concerned about security in marriage. 
But you know, if these are the only concerns that you have come with to church here this morning, perhaps in your life and experience, there is need for an earthquake sent by God to awaken the real and finally the only concern that ever matters. And so suddenly that earthquake literally and physically is sent. And his concern arose, you notice, because all around him the ground was shaking and the walls of the prison were heaving to and fro. And what can puny man do in the midst of the convulsions of nature that Almighty God has sent? And it seems as though this man was suddenly faced with a power that he could no longer control. All the affairs of the prison were under his control, and he was very efficient, no doubt, in pursuing his duties. But here was something that was beyond his control altogether. And he is awakened out of sleep and suddenly surrounded by forces over which he has no say whatsoever. And you must notice as well that that awakened concern came because as he looked around and saw the prison doors had been supernaturally burst open and every prisoner's chains had come loose from the wall, now this doesn't normally happen in any normal terrestrial earthquake. This is an act that is supernatural and an act of God that every man without exception should stand free in his place of bondage. And that instead of prisoners escaping, they are all in their place. And you see that the effect upon this man who previously had no concern about the supernatural, evidently, the effect upon this man who had never been spiritually awakened is to begin to consider that he is a man who is standing face to face with God and eternity and that the only explanation of all these things taken together is that God is at work in some strange and inexplicable way in the darkness of those Philippian dungeons. My friend, have you ever considered that God so often works that way still in human lives? How many of you who are believers in the Lord have come to Christ by that very same route, not a physical earthquake that has shaken and rocked the ground beneath your feet, but God has sent an earthquake in other ways into your job where you thought you were secure, into your marriage that had produced so much happiness and you were beginning to live for things terrestrial, things on the earth, into your home where sickness or disease had suddenly come and you suddenly realized that you were not, after all, in control of the circumstances of your life. And you were aroused, as it were, from the sleep and the slumber of spiritual death. As God, the disturbing God, came into your life. And you realized you could no longer going on, go on living 
in what was in reality a dream world. And you said to yourself, who has control of disease and death? Who can prevent this fatal circumstance coming into my family? Who can stop the advance of old age and the deterioration of our bodies? And God, who put this disturbance at root in your mind, confronted you through it with the facing of eternity. And you realized, as he did, it was high time to awake. But do you notice there was not only an awakening of conscience, awakening of, of concern, but also awakening of conscience? It's revealed, isn't it, in the very question in verse 30, what shall I do to be saved? Now he was soon to realize that he had no need to fear from the earthquake. It had not harmed him nor any of the prisoners for whom he was responsible. And that great and fierce Roman law that required the death of the jailer in the stead of any escaped captive, was not applicable to his life anymore. And when he asked this question, therefore, it was not a question that had any relevance to physical danger. His life physically was no longer in danger. But he had been awakened, you see, to that far greater and more real danger that is always around the unforgiven sinner, the unregenerate person, the spiritual danger that we stand in from the wrath of Almighty God. And if you remember some of those sermons that I preached to you on the book of Ecclesiastes, you will remember that later one on the fear of God where I said that there is a fear of God that the natural man has, the unforgiven sinner, as he stands in the presence of his judge. And if ever again there were an illustration from Scripture of that fear of the unforgiven sinner, it's surely here in the 16th of Acts, as this man experiences an awakened conscience toward God. What shall I do to be saved? And he was led to it by this whole sequence of strange events. What did they mean? Here are doors open. How came they that way? Here are prisoners who could have escaped, but every one of them stands in his place. How came that? Here are two of his victims, brutally treated whose only concern is to save the jailer's life, their captive's life, their tormentor's life. How came that? And a nameless awe begins to sink in to the awakened conscience of this man. And it is as though his sins rise up before him in a ray like an army standing on its feet, and he realizes he is accountable to God, yet he cannot appear before him with any sense of confidence. And in the presence of this awful power that has been abroad, yet has taken care of him and preserved his life, he is struck 
with a sense of the fear of God and the nearness of things unseen have caused him in a moment to review the whole of his past life. And his conscience awakened has judged and condemned him as he looks into eternity. My friend, has conscience awakened in you? Do you know that experience? Have you faced your greatest problem? Have you even discovered it? It's not your job. It's not your marriage. It's not your health. It's how you will stand in that great day of judgment before that awful Lord who is the all-righteous and most holy one. It's not in the horizontal direction. But your real problem is in the vertical dimension. You know, beloved, we're living in an age, I think, when we've forgotten that fear of God. I was reading recently in the biography of Jonathan Edwards, that great minister in New England in the 18th century in the new biography by Ian Murray of the Banner of Truth Trust, an incident that would almost be impossible to imagine today, where certain theological students at Harvard were in a little room reading together a sermon, reading it, Mark, you not listening to it, but reading it from a book. And such was the effect of the reading of that sermon upon those students that they were afraid to go from the place they were sitting in the room over to the door to exit the room lest the floor in front of them would open up and swallow them into hell itself. Such was the conviction of sin that God put into the conscience of these young men from reading a sermon. The fear of God awakening them to their spiritual danger. And beloved, that's what we have here. The awakening of concern. The awakening of conscience. But then do you notice, thirdly, there was the awakening of this man's understanding. Now if you look at that question in verse 30, you can avoid the pitfall that I found a number of commentators upon this passage have most certainly made. They've said regarding his question, there are, he asked the right question, but in the wrong way. Because he immediately said, what must I do to be saved? Aha, say the commentators, we cannot do anything. It is God who saves us in Christ. But don't you see from the question in verse 30 that that is precisely the understanding to which this man has been awakened? Because the verb that he uses is not the active tense, but the passive tense. How can I be saved, he says. In other words, he has come to realize it's not something that he can do himself. It's something that is done for him and to him and in him. Who can deal with the problems of my soul, he's been led to ask. And all his former unconcern and cynicism is banished in a moment. Is there someone who can take my life and touch it? 
as deeply as I need. My friend, if you come here this morning, even a member or a visitor or one of you children sitting here, where God has begun to deal with your soul and your conscience and led you to that position where you cry out to the Lord, is there someone who can touch my life as deeply as I need? Because that is the beginning of the process of salvation in Christ. Do you see it? an awakened concern, an awakened conscience, an awakened understanding, before that wonderful change could ever come about, here is a man greatly alarmed. And I want to say to you this morning, if ever this book is to do you any good, if ever my Savior would do you any good, There must be that urgency that comes into your own soul where it's no longer an academic question. We must have a quiet chat together, the Lord and I. That's not how salvation comes. But it comes, beloved, when a man, a woman, a boy, a girl is alarmed at last because there has been an awakening of concern and of conscience, and of understanding. Let me say to you covenant children, you boys and girls that are here this morning, we're glad to have you in the service, but let me tell you, it's possible for you to come to church, but not to have come to Christ. It's possible for you to open the Bible and read it with your parents, or even by yourselves, and yet you have not come to that faith but is resting upon the Lord Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of heaven. My dear children here this morning, you who are teenagers, let me say this to you. Though you come to church as often as you will, though you open the book as often as you should, and I'm glad you do, if you have only come to church or come to the Bible but have not come to Christ, you are in the greatest possible danger. And the fact that your father and your mother are Christians does not make you a Christian. The fact that they are safe does not make you safe. And oh, I want to appeal to you with all my heart Pray that the gracious Lord may awaken you in the youngness of your years and the ripeness of your life to see your need of the cleansing blood of Christ by which alone your sins can be forgiven you. Here is the most urgent question that can ever come from human lips. Now, do you notice, secondly, with me, that there is also, thank God, the most accurate answer that can ever be given to that question? In verse 31, it's the plainest of all answers. Even the youngest child here this morning can understand it without any difficulty. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now let me say to you at once that evidently the apostles shared much more than just that with this man in need 
Because if you look in verse 32, it goes on to tell us that they went on to explain the way of salvation more fully and clearly to him. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. And how blessed it is, congregation, to have a good physician of the soul who will minister to you, not give you a false remedy or an easy answer, not speak in ecclesiastical jargon but is way above your head, not come to you with some enthusiastic solution that lasts for a day and then is gone for good but to give you a most accurate and biblical and correct and lasting answer to the most urgent question that can ever fall from human lips. Now, what is implied in that answer? There are two things, and only two. There is a special activity, beloved. Believe on the Lord Jesus. How can I find answer to my guilt? How can I find peace of conscience? I who have been awakened to the wrath of God and the danger of my position before him, who cannot come with assurance into his presence as all my sins rise up like an army before me and stand together accusingly in my presence. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is that faith that is biblical and scriptural? Beloved, I must tell you that it is not an intellectual exercise of the mind. I have known people who can explain correctly and theologically and biblically all the elements of saving faith, yet it's evident from their lives but they've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, but only to an intellectual understanding of what is involved. And I want to say to you this morning that it is to the grace of faith that God has given the peculiar, the special significance of using it as the instrument to unite the needy sinner to the all-sufficient Savior. That's what faith is. It's the connecting link between the needy sinner and the all-sufficient Savior. And this is why Jesus came into the world, as he tells us in John 6, verse 28, this is the work of God that he has sent me into the world to do, that you may believe on him whom the Father has sent. What is this faith? It is the receiving and the resting upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to me in the gospel. Now mark you well, this is at once an activity of man. God does not believe for us and on our behalf, we do it. But it is also an activity of God, because it is God who makes it possible. 
just as he has made possible the awakening of this man dead in trespasses and sins by the earthquake and the apostolic witness in the prison, drawing him irresistibly to the place and the point where that cry breaks forth from his lips, what shall I do to be saved? So faith is given by God sovereignly in answer to that question. You know, I think that C.H. Spurgeon has that beautiful illustration that I must quote to you this morning of faith as he was preaching upon a passage dealing with biblical faith. He says this, listen, come by faith to Jesus, for without him you perish forever. Did you ever notice how a fir tree will get a hold among rocks which seem to afford it no soil? It sends a rootlet out into a tiny crack that opens in a fissure in the rock. It clutches even the bare rock as with a huge bird's claw. It holds fast and binds itself to the earth with a hundred anchorages. We have often seen trees, says Spurgeon, thus firmly rooted upon detached masses of rock. Now, dear heart, let it be a picture, he says of yourself. Grip the rock of ages with the rootlet of little faith. Hold on to him. Let that tiny feeler grow. And meanwhile, send out another to take a new grasp of the same rock. Lay hold of Jesus and keep a grasp on him. Grow up into him. Twist the roots of your nature, the fibers of your heart about him. He is as free to you as the rocks are to the fir trees. Be you as firmly lashed to him as the pine trees are to the mountainside. Is that not faith by the grace of the living God? But then the second thing you notice in this answer is the exclusive object to which faith is directed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has nothing to do with the modern preoccupation of possibility thinking. If you think hard enough, you can get yourself out of any problem and dilemma, adversity and distress. This is not Christianity. Christianity is Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not the church. Not theories about Christianity. Not your parents' faith, you children who are here. But the exclusive object of faith is and must always be the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can save us from the wrath of an offended God, and by his death and resurrection has paid the penalty for the sins of his chosen people who have shed his blood, that it might be as it were a mantle for their righteousness and by whose grace and spirit alone we come to God. And that, you see, is the most characteristic reference of faith in the Bible, the engagement person to person of the sinner who is lost to the Savior 
who is all-sufficient, and it is faith that brings them together. Oh, my dear friends, have you come to that position? I pray with all my heart as I finish this morning that you might come to it by the grace of God. I remember in the ministry of Dr. Thomas Chalmers many years ago in Scotland, in days when the Church of Scotland was dry and dead like a shriveled up stick, and when he, though a minister of God's word, knew nothing of the grace of God, it was said of his ministry that he preached morality and virtue until he could scarce find any in his parish to listen. But mark you, when he began to preach Jesus Christ and simple faith in him, then he saw the worst of the worst reformed, and men sought after holiness and truth. And his congregation began to grow until it surpassed all bounds. Have you come into that saving relationship with the Lord Jesus? Or are you still like Dr. Thomas Chalmers, preaching up morality and living a virtuous life in the hope of being reconciled to God? And beloved, I tell you that that way is a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. It's an everlasting disaster. Have you found answer to this most urgent question? By which way have you come to Christ? Have you come? Members, visitors, children, others. As C.H. Spurgeon says, this gospel for a man with a sword at his throat is the gospel for me. This would suit me if I were dying, and it is all that I need while I am living. I look away from self and sin and all idea of personal merit, and I trust the Lord Jesus as the Savior whom God has given. I believe in him. I rest on him. I accept him to be my all in all. Lord, I am saved and I shall be saved to all eternity, for I believe in Jesus. Blessed be thy name for this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the plainest of plain questions and the plainest of plain answers. And with all our hearts, we would cleave to the Lord Jesus and let that root of little faith grow until it wraps itself around him and will not let him go as that great link of saving faith that brings Christ, the all-sufficient one, into the very center and the very orbit of our lives. May that be the experience of us all. For his name's sake. Amen.